0: Let me ask you something. If the rule you followed, Roger of this, of what use was the rule? Greetings, dear listeners. This is another exciting – well, we'll see if it's exciting uh, – edition of the Remnant podcast. Um, I'm recording this from the lavish Nyapon Palatial Studios at National Review World Headquarters. I believe I'm literally sitting in the seat where Rihan Salam usually brings you his Bismarckian mercantilism version of conservatism on the Editor's Podcast, but we don't have Ryan here today. Instead, we have, for those of you who might remember, his co-author from a uh, uh, of uh, a book that made quite a splash in a small pond of eggheads um, in the – was it the 2000s?
1: 2008.
0: 2000. Was it that recently? It feels <laughs> I, like a million years ago. I like, I ago.
1: like how I, – I don't think of 2008 as recent. I um, think of it as – Several geological ages ago.
0: And if you can't tell from the mellifluous tones. The dulcet voice. The dulcet voice. uh, The velvet fog that is National (laughs) Review's uh, film critic, I have today Ross Douthat with me. Ross, Ross, good to have you here.
1: It's great to be here, Jonah. And it is Douthat. Thanks for having me back. It's Douthat.
0: Because you have probably the most mispronounced prominent name in American life other than Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Yes.
1: Did Did I get it right? Yes, Dowsett is a fine old uh, northern English name that used to be, I think, Douthwaite probably Uh with a D-O-W back in the mists of the 17th century and some pretentious ancestor decided it would look better with a U in it and ever since that time, everyone has assumed that it's either do that or do ta Uh Um, and you can actually track – I've made this joke on other podcasts probably but you can track the class divide in America – the pretension divide by whether people mispronounce it as do that or do ta. Interesting. So my Little League team, I was Ross do that. And then when you get to the you know, elevated areas of the Ivy League, people assume it must be French. I see. But, but
0: I always assumed it was Dutch to be honest. It, really? It, 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 van is it? van dut, van dut, van dutat? Yeah, 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 that yeah, kind yeah, of yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. I feel like you should be selling me shoes or diamonds or no, something. No, it's like Yorkshire
1: border, you know, yeah. H- hence collie, collie wranglers, coal miners, probably pre-coal. They probably hence, left.
0: Hence your Tolkienism.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah.
0: And actually you made the claim, which I thought was intriguing if not necessarily persuasive, that – and let, let us let – us, we are men here. Let us both admit that we come from the ranks of conservative sci-fi eggheadery, right? Those yes. are our roots. Those are our people. Um, yes. You made a claim recently in a column that – the the gateway drug – I'm not quoting it, quoting it exactly. But the gateway drug to conservative nerdiness is either through Ayn Rand or through Tolkien. Yes. I definitely come through Tolkien. But I never really associated it with my conservatism until much later. So I thought it was an interesting contention.
1: Yeah. and I, I mean I think Tolkien has obviously a huge non-conservative fan base um, in a way that Ayn Rand – well, she has a non-conservative fan base, right, but right, not right. really a non-libertarian fan base. With, with Rand, right. the ideology is, you know, it's right there. Like you right. can't go through John Galt's speech without having it be pretty clear that somebody's somebody's got a message. Whereas, yeah, Tolkien is sort of compatible. The Tolkienian worldview is compatible with certain forms of sort of environmentalist, left-wing politics. And, you know, I mean fantasy as a genre is – you know, has a huge fan base and huge numbers of novelists who right. are sort of deeply associated with the political left. You know, if you read the political stylings of George R. R. Martin, you will not be surprised to discover that he is not, in fact, a dues-paying member of the Intercollegiate Studies <laughs> Institute. <laughs> um, but still, Tolkien himself was clearly a particular kind of Catholic conservative slash reactionary. And his style of you know, it's, it's sort of the opposite pole in the conservative landscape from from Randianism, I think.
0: Yeah, no, it's funny. I mean one of the things that stands out for me in my memory and does – I do remember activating my conservative genes at the time was the discussion of how the Shire had been kind of ruined by the end of the, the series, right? When they go back and it wasn't the same anymore, right. that I was always – had a – very powerful nostalgia streak in me yep. and the feeling of being hobbited away with your books or in my case, my comic books at the time, right? But right. like hobbited away in a place where you have all the food you want, all the familiar comforts and they see that kind of ruin. That really uh, flipped a lot of chromosomes on me. <laughs> um, where,
1: whereas Rand is like objectively pro-Saruman. Right. Right? No, like, right. Like like the, you know, the Ayn Rand version of Middle Earth. There's this, uh, you know, you've We can profit, seen maximize
0: it. the shire by turning it into a parking lot. Right,
1: exactly. Like, why wouldn't you tear up, you know, Fango right. and Forest to build railroads? Because right. railroads are the best, and the Tower of <laughs> Orthanc is a symbol of man's mastery um, <laughs> over the Misty Mountains. You know, there's that semi-famous from the early 2000s parody uh, where it's, is it it's Noam Chomsky and Howard Zinn providing a commentary track for the Lord of the Rings? <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> you, know you've this. never, you've no. never seen this? Oh, it's uh, fantastic because they're all like. Oh, you know, the Gandalf really just wants to corner the pipeweed market you know, and uh, the orcs. Nobody ever hears about the orcs' perspective. We're just listening to Gondor's propaganda here. That's right. Right. Um, so there's a – I think there's probably a good Randian parody to be written too where I don't think she would be pro-Sauron but I think Saruman is kind of a Randian superhero. There's a, ways.
0: there's a – there's a – Um. there's also an element of argumentum add Sonny Bunchum to that, right? Like <laughs> – the real villains in Lord of the Rings are uh, the right. forces Our, of the West. That's you know? right. The West
1: is standing in the way. You know, I mean, look—it's a—it's a—it's a depopulated civilization, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the you know Arnor, the northern realm, has you know completely fallen apart. There's no state building. There's no roads. That's whereas, right. whereas you go down to like Harad and you know the corsairs of Umbar and so on, this is where the real economic action is, you know, yeah, and, yeah. And,
0: and policy and, optimality is that's going right. on that's there. Right. <laughs> um, so I mean one of the reasons why I want to bring this up is because I wanted to bring it up. But uh, the – so it's funny. The the Tolkien strand of conservatism, I remember reading – there was a big profile of him when the first movie came out in The New Yorker where it had this great line from him about how he thought he – he wasn't anti-technology but he wanted all the factories to be out – in remote corners away from all humanity, sort of like like build them really big. But they're they're eyesores and they should be surrounded by impenetrable forests that no one can get through. And I thought that's a good – that is a hardcore serious conservative take on, you know, compromising with the need for improvement but at the same time hide it out there. And it's a bit Douthatian. Douthatian work? I guess so.
1: Sometimes I say Douthation. Douthation. But but only in front of the mirror alone at home.
0: (laughs) So – but one of, the, one of the things I want to bring it up is that – you know. so this podcast is called The Remnant for listeners who are new to the show. That's a reference, again, first of all, to the, the Bible but more to an argument by a guy named Albert J. Nock who argued that um, it's OK to be out of step with your times. Um, I started this in the midst of the Trumpapalooza moment and I kind of feel like I'm a prophet. I don't know. A prophet without honor is a little too grandiose. I don't know if I'm you're prophesizing. Honored, you're honored. I'm a, no, I'm more like a, you know a ranger from the old civilization, <laughs> wandering around, waiting for the restoration. And um, but in a lot of ways, Jonah, you know, Jonah Gorn of the North, <laughs> when you were a wee wee pundit larva here at National Review as an intern, right, and then you went to the American Scene, which for you younger people was a really excellent blog that you did with Ryan. And did you – there was a third person in that, no, at one point? There
1: were a few third third people. There was a guy named Steve Manashi, who was oh, an yeah, uh, yeah, editor yeah. at Policy Review who went on to become um, a noted lawyer of some sort. Uh-huh. Um, and then later, Raihan basically picked up a whole gaggle, especially after I sort of had my blog brought on board at The Atlantic. He picked up a whole gaggle of people who we were friendly with who have now – you know, American scene alumni include Peter Suderman who writes right. for Reason and Vox um, and other distinguished places. Um, Connor Friedersdorf, you know, of, of the Atlantic. There, there's a long list and, you know, the blog was probably read by about yeah. 16 people. Yeah. But the 15 li- people who wrote for it were, were awesome. <laughs> so.
0: There's a list. I'm I'm sure how long. But yeah, no. Um, but in a way, you were kind of remnanty before a lot of other people were. Not, not, not necessarily my same ideological – Lineup, but you were um, – you came – when you came on the scene as a writer, you were a little more out of step with where the GOP was in the 2000s than a lot of other people were, right? And so one of the things I want to ask you is – so the argument that you and Ryan made in in, in Sam's Club Republicans, right, right, was that the GOP needed to take account to the, 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 the struggles, the plight, the tribulations of the, the working class Americans who – we're not all that um, seduced by the sort of – I don't want to cast aspersions, but sort of the Kudlow-esque version of Reaganism, right. right? And that, and this this is one of the things that has always bothered me about some of the people who have become full, full-throated uh, Trumpers in recent years is that for years, people like you, people like Ramesh, Raihan, were arguing about how we need to update – maybe not necessarily Reaganite principles, but how we apply them, right? right? And then all of a sudden, Trump wins over yep. precisely the people that you guys were trying to reach out to and yes. were being peed on from a great height yes. by people saying, this is, oh, this is me too Republicanism. This is not
1: conservatism. Right. Yep.
0: So I guess the first question is, how bitter are you? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not, it's not
1: bitterness. You know, there's a sense, I, I think I use this, line once in a column that, you know, Trumpism is kind of the the Star Trek mirror universe version in certain ways of Grand New Party, mm-hmm. um, where it's, you know, it it does a lot of things that we said the Republican Party should do. It tries to win the kind of voters that we said the Republican Party should win, but it does it with a little more, you know, a little more evilness. In certain ways, um, a little, you know, a little more race baiting, a little more identity politics, and I think part of the argument that Rihan and I were making at the time, although I don't think we fleshed it out fully, was that, you know, having a little more economic populism in your conservatism is a way to avoid the alternative, which is sort of identitarianism, right, 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 where you're winning white working class voters um, by spending all your time talking about, you know. How there's you know voter fraud in the inner cities that's stealing the you know stealing their votes and black athletes are kneeling for the national anthem and all the stuff that Trump does that I think is you know explicitly intended. Um, I, I know there are people who don't like hearing Trump accused of racism and so on, and but I, I think Trump from the beginning he started his career as a birther. He's always been happy to you know whatever it is in his heart to sort of stoke racial division. Yeah,
0: um, and so. I will to, say, to, as a New Yorker, I remember it's it's a kind of race, it's racial a, appeal that I don't think is understood very well in its roots as coming from a kind of populist New Yorkism.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. It's not a like you know Alexander Stevens sort of neo Confederate vision. Right. Of course, there are, as we see in Virginia, some neo Confederates who do who do like Trump. But no, it's much more of a sort of tribal who's looking out for you? You know, we we got the Jews over here and the blacks over here and the Italians over there. And I'm looking out for you guys in the heartland and the Democrats and the Mexicans and the blacks and aren't, you know, they're on the other side and so on, which is, yeah, it's not, it's not white supremacy in an old South kind of way, but it is, as you would say, you know, sort of, it's tribalization basically. And, and with a, you know, with a strong racial edge. And so, you know, it's weird to watch this happen and, work electorally in basically the way that I think, you know, if you said, well, what is the electoral outcome for a Republican Party that adopted the grand new party vision? I would have said, well, you know, they'll lose some suburban voters, and they'll win a lot more Rust Belt states. And that trade off will be worth it in the Electoral College. And it will sort of push you towards the next Republican majority. And that is exactly what happened. And of course, I think, you know, the political problem for Trump is that, Precisely because he relies so heavily on this identitarianism, he can't get to the next level where right. the sort of working class Republican coalition. If you're going to shed these suburban voters, you need some more middle and working class blacks and Hispanics. Right, and you know. There are people who on, his, in, on team Trump, including Steve Bannon, who will sometimes say, oh, you know, we're going to win minorities. We're, you know, we're, we're, we're going to do that. We see that as part of the plan. But that's not where Trump's, I think, energy and heart and focus are. And so he's, if he can't do that, his coalition can win the electoral college narrowly. But it's still can, always going to be stuck, at least for now, at, at 45, 46 percent of the vote. But yeah, I mean, that's that's the basic dynamic. You know, I mean, Trump, the other thing I I like to say is that, you know, all those of us who were sort of engaged in this kind of, you know, rethinking conservatism project, you mentioned Raihan and Ramesh, someone like, you know, Yuval Levin, the, the wizard of national affairs, you know, a lot of people like that. I mean, there's a lesson for all of us in the appeal of Trump, independent of the, you know, the racial stuff and so on, which is just that. You know, policy wonks can describe things all they want. You know, you can sit there with your list of ideas and I thought our ideas were good ideas. But in the end, the language of politics is to some extent the language of passion and alpha maleness and all of these things. And um, it doesn't have to be manifest in the particular way that Trump manifested it. But any kind of reformed, more populist conservatism was going to need – a leader who was good at politics and wasn't just sort of reading, you know, here's our family-friendly tax plan and so on. And to watch, for instance, you know, the way Trump effectively steamrolled Marco Rubio, who was a guy who a lot of us thought was sort of a natural vessel for this kind of populism, was instructive. And I think it was instructive to Rubio himself. I think, you know, Rubio may become a better politician in the long run because of that steamrolling. But there's just a, a bottom line lesson for all of us in sort of Pundit world about the difference between the blueprint and the political reality. Yeah, no,
0: I, I agree with that. Um, I mean, I, I think, I mean, there, are, there are many, there are many lessons to be learned. Right. Um, that's you, why Trump is so good for punditry because you yeah.
1: can. There's a lessons learned column you that's, can write every single that's, week. That's and that's it's always a different lesson.
0: That's true. Um, you know, I mean, part of my argument has long been that he broke the blood-brain barrier between politics and entertainment. Yep. People are looking at politics much more as a form of entertainment, yep. and I think that helps explain, which we can get to in a little bit, the rise of things like Alex Jones and mm-hmm. some of these other controversies. Is that we suspend our critical faculties and we really just like to see the spectacle of it all. And it's a, it, to me, it's in part an abdication abdication of your civic responsibilities to say, I'm just going to enjoy politics as a visceral thing rather than a cerebral thing. You know, I mean, it gotta be both. But we're pretty low on the cerebral right now. And but um uh
1: and also people underestimated, I think, generally sort of I think people in what we think of as the elite or the Acela Corridor, or whatever you want to call it, you know, underestimated the ex the power of reality television generally. Yeah. Um the power of, you know, the something like the apprentice, right, yeah. to create this Reality around Trump that was never real. You right. know, he was not actually the world's greatest businessman. He was a what? successful reality television star. But, but the fact that he was sold that way did in fact make a difference to yeah. his image that then carried over into politics.
0: I, I wrote my LA Times column this week on how um, almost everything about Trump is kayfabe, you know. In professional wrestling, for people yeah. who don't know, kayfabe is the it's the it's the fourth wall, right? It's 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 the pretense that what's what you actually see is real. When really it's either staged or scripted or whatever and so much of what Trump does, the enemy of the people, all of these kinds of things. And what's interesting, I was listening to um, Bill Kristol's uh, conversations with Bill Crystal thing with Ron Brownstein a mm-hmm. couple of weeks ago. And Brownstein made the point that for the first – that the one way to understand Trump is that he's a wartime president. But the war he's waging isn't against a foreign power. It's against blue America, right? So blue America and everything it represents one in one facet or another are the heels, right? They're the the iron sheiks, right? And he's yeah. Sergeant Slaughter. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. And I think though like it what will be really interesting I think in the – for the – in the postmortems of the people who did make the leap to Trumpism. When they look back – like you're looking back and you're looking at these lessons learned, what – you know we needed to have a more visceral, passionate vessel for our policy ideas, right? The reverse lesson is going to be really fascinating about Trump because if Trump had come in and actually had a policy agenda that was closer to what you were talking about, it could have destroyed the Democratic Party, right? If he led with infrastructure, right. if he didn't make it a, oh, look at the dusky people who are you know uh, invading our country or – um, look at the black people who are, uh, you know, uh, insulting our flag and all that kind of stuff. If he didn't run his presidency like a John McNaughton painting, painting <laughs> um, he he could have. Sp- he, it, if he came out with a trillion dollar infrastructure thing in his inaugural address, rather than that sort of, you know, better in the original version, uh, original German version, you know, Bannon thing, half the Republicans, two thirds of the Republicans would have voted for it. It would have broken the free market spine of the right. GOP much earlier. And he would have gotten a third, 20 percent of Democrats, you know, and yep. – he, But he would have needed
1: people around him who understood or had a theory of how to operationalize that. And I mean one of the things about Trump is that he sort of – you know, he sort of outran the infrastructure that you need to yeah. operationalize something, right? You know, by the time Reagan came in, he had been being Reagan for – right. depending on how you count things, 15 to 25 years. He had – you know the Heritage Foundation, and but lots of other people there with sort of ideas of what you were going to do.
0: He'd answered hard questions about his ideology since yes. he was at GE.
1: Yes, yeah. and he had also sort of it had confronted reality. I mean, right. he he had he was more moderate by the time he ran for president. He'd been a governor. He'd done all kinds of things, and you know the same has been true to a lesser extent. You know, I mean, compassion of George W. Bush, compassionate conservatism was planned over the course of four to six years. It had books. It had white papers it had people it had a group of people who believed in it and with trump you know i think he he sort of invented it on the fly pulling it from some sources you know so, so that some of which were reasonably smart others of which were
0: printouts ridic- from newsmax rid- ridic- right, ridiculous right ridiculous
1: <laughs> and not but there just weren't enough people who believed in it yeah. to sort of staff administration and the person you know, the person who was closest to really believing in it was Bannon. And, you know, Bannon was the guy who was giving the interview to Michael Wolf during the transition, who's talking exactly as you're right, doing, who's right. saying, look, we're going to split the Democratic Party, right. we're going to get the unions, we're going to do this infrastructure bill, the sort of Paul Ryan types are never going to know what hit him, it's going to be a new majority. And, you know, it was always a limit on that. Like You know, Trump is never going to be a, a Reagan, a 60% of the vote kind right. of president, but he he could have... In a good economy, doing something like that, he could have been a you know fifty-two percent, which which is real success in sure, this sure. political landscape. But Bannon didn't. You know, B- Bannon came in and, as far as I could tell, was spent most of his time, you know, first trying to stoke those kind of right. quasi kfabi battles over immigration, Muslims, and so on that that Bannon and Steve Miller think are big winners and. I don't. (laughs) And second, trying to control everything. You know, Steve Bannon, he's going to be on the National Security Council. He's going to, you know, he's going to manipulate foreign policy and domestic policy and so on. When in fact, the thing Steve Bannon needed to do was come in and say, hi, I'm going to be Mr. Infrastructure. Right. And I'm going to make sure that Capitol Hill goes our way instead of Paul Ryan's way. And once, once Bannon failed, then, you know, there's no ideological center in the White House beyond, I think Miller has an ideological vision that's mostly centered around immigration policy and as far as I can tell, nobody else does.
0: Yeah. All right. So beginning – we just believe it or not, even people who know exactly what they're going to be getting on this podcast, I still get complaints about people who say I talk too much about Trump. So uh, getting back to where – um the sort of the premise of the question from before. You're also sort of remnant-y in other regards, right? Which have nothing to do with Trump. Like you've been pretty – Passionately against things like pornography for a long time, right? Which usually you have to wait until you have a kid to be against pornography. Right. <laughs> and, yep.
1: I, tried to, I tried to get that started earlier.
0: And you're a, you know, it's sort of like, you know, 2000, I went back and found this column I wrote in 2002 in favor of censorship. And I was the youngest person ever in the history of man to write about censorship. But you're also, you know, you were on Team Sparrow in Game of Thrones. Yes. Um, uh, for the, the, late,
1: the late lamented High Sparrow. Yes. Yeah.
0: Um, who actually had a moral. Moral universe, right? I, he, I
1: think I thought a religious theocracy was in fact what the Westerosi uniforce needed, right. as you know, as a bridge to a to a better form of government down the, down the road.
0: And um, it came out fairly recently that you are um, that you have misgivings about the Enlightenment. Enlightenment, <laughs> um, which I do too. Yeah. I mean, this is the, one of the things is I think that um, uh, Jamel Bowie mischaracterized my views on the Enlightenment and lumped me in with um, Stephen Pinker on this, but um, I don't think there was I think Pinker is completely wrong when he treats the enlightenment as a single thing, right? There were many enlightenments, the yep. French enlightenment, you know, people say the enlightenment gave birth to capitalism in a sense sure, but it also gave birth to socialism, you know, and yes. and nationalism to a certain extent and uh and German the German enlightenment was very different than the French enlightenment and the French enlightenment was very different than the English enlightenment and the American enlightenment was very different than all those, but uh Are you a disciple of Patrick Deneen's, uh, you know, How Liberalism Failed thesis?
1: No, I'm an admirer of Patrick. Uh I think the book is very strongly argued and interesting and captures a really important truth about sort of a particular direction that liberal modernity tends to go in, this sort of combination that, you know, Patrick is not the first person to talk about, but this sort of combination of a... You know, strong state and weak society, right. and sort of you know th- the way the free market, when sort of cut loose from moral restraints, um, tends to sort of be totally compatible with an incredibly strong right. government at the same time. Very much a
0: Yuval Levin right. thesis yeah. too. It's sort
1: of it's sort of taking a traditional cultural conservative argument and dialing it up, and also being much more critical than most American conservatives are of the sort of ideological underpinnings of the founding. And I guess I am, I'll try and loop this around to the Enlightenment. I mean, I think where I, I'm i skeptical of Patrick's argument insofar as I'm skeptical of a lot of arguments that emphasize, I think, too heavily the sort of determining effect of ideas in history mm-hmm. and the idea that, you know, well, because the founding ended with America as it is today, therefore you can, you know, you look, you sort of parse the founding for the the pieces of it that lead to our current situation and say, right. well, that, that, you know, that was the problem that the, the worm was in the apple from the beginning. And really, I think quite often, you know, you can have political orders and political systems that work very well, for instance, under one technological condition mm-hmm. and don't work very well under another, right? Like it might be the case that the founding's particular combination of, you know, a sort of... Politics of liberty, a commercial republic, uh, um, you know, sort of the constitutional order, the separation of church and state worked really well right up until the invention of the interstate highway and the birth control pill. Right, right. And right. I'm being, you know, I'm being no, a little deliberately no, ridiculous No, I'm with there, you on this. I'm totally with you. But, but, but you can get – or the invention of the internet, right? right? I mean I think a lot of or people – Or the automobile. Or the automobile or, you know, that – that, in the same way that like you know the medieval particular medieval orders worked reasonably well right up until big technological shifts or the age of discovery came or the off printing or, press. or something right yeah. you know if you take i mean if you take you know if you take an issue like slavery, for instance, you can place a heck of a lot of weight on intellectuals who justified slavery, but in fact, you know the cotton gin <laughs> plays right. a huge role. And similarly, you know, the discovery of the Americas is the big reason why slavery was, which was dying out in Christian Europe, suddenly right. comes roaring back. It's not just the fault of, let's say, Machiavelli and, and an instrumental view of politics. So that's, that's sort of my, one of my big, que- at least questions about Patrick's thesis. I'm sort of, I'm very open to Critiques of the founding, I think, as a as a Roman Catholic, you have to be to some extent, because there is a certain kind of anti-Catholicism woven into American-style liberalism early on that I think Catholics should be a little skeptical of. Um, but I'm also skeptical of the notion that there is this sort of deter you know, this sort mm-hmm. of philosophical determinism. And then, yeah, the Enlightenment itself, I mean, it's Jamel Bowie wrote that piece, critiquing you among others, and he was attacked, including by many of our fellow conservatives. And I sort of I didn't attack him by the no, way. I, no, I you know, I noticed that. And I I sort of quasi-defended him in a few tweets. And I'm not sure I totally you know, you say something and then you spend the next week reading more things about it. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. I think I would have qualified specific I can't remember precisely what I said, but sort of you know, the 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 role of the Enlightenment in sort of ratifying the idea of sort of racial categorization, uh-huh. for instance, as a scientific thing and so on. You know, I, I think there's there's a lot of really interesting debate because intellectual history is incredibly complex about how true that was. But my general view is that there is a clear strand of the Enlightenment that is basically the idea that politics and culture can be subject to extreme amounts of rational control, and that's the Enlightenment that I'm generally against. Sure. And there are other, and and that I think runs in different directions, but it runs. You know, it shapes the French Revolution and and, and everything associated with that, um, which I'm generally against. It shapes Marxism, um, who is, you know, I, I think Marx had some real insights, but the trajectory of Marxism I'm generally against. It shapes eugenics and, you know, right. some of the progressive stuff that you wrote about in the liberal fascism. Um, and it shapes, you know, I think both liberalism and conservatism in different ways, but I think especially in certain ways, liberalism down, down to the present day. And that I'm against. I, what I like to imagine, right, you know, you always want to look at the past and say, well, here are the people who were right.
0: Right, right, right. And,
1: and I'm with them, right. right? So I like the idea of a story in which as this alternative to the Enlightenment, you have a kind of mix of Toryism and sort of moralistic Christian radicalism. Um, that reject a lot of some, a lot of the Enlightenment's premises, but share some of its moral mm-hmm. causes. Because there was a big strand of the Enlightenment that was all in for abolition. Um, and so, I'd like to say, you know, you can have this tradition that encompasses, you know, Bartolomé all the way back to Bartolomé de las Casas, and ropes in. You know, there were a lot of Tories and Jacobites in 18th century England um, before Burke who right. were critical of the slave trade, who were critical of the exploitation of the Irish um, and so on. And then you get to Burke, who before the French Revolution is a big reformer in many ways, a critic of, you know, sort of excesses of imperialism in India. And then you get to the abolition era, which is heavily driven by kind of evangelical piety and zeal. And someone like William Wilberforce in England is a friend of Burke early on. Um, So so you can sort of – I can tell that kind of counter story and say, you know – and, and this probably fits in with my slightly remnanty, you know, slightly populist style of conservatism today, where I think you get moral progress in many cases with sort of a kind of temperamental Toryism joined to a willingness to be morally radical when the times demanded. it. Th- I like that story, but I think it's an egregious oversimplification of history, too. Right. And I think there's a there is a sense in which there are particular figures who are associated with the Enlightenment who are hostile to my own religion. Who did get, for instance, you know, the evils of slavery right in a way that the Tories of the 18th century weren't? They, they wouldn't go all the way there. They'd be yeah. like, yeah, it's not a great thing, but we're against it in some general way, but we're not going to go all the way to abolition. And yeah, and yeah. So so, so I'm I'm not I can't go full anti enlightenment in that so, sense.
0: So one of the things I'm sure you've never experienced anything like this. One of the great frustrations I've had with um, the responses to my book is that most of the critical reviews. Are really tearing apart the book they think I should have written. <laughs> um, and um and I think one of the things if I had to do it over, I would be more explicit in what I was up to. But there's a reason why I relied on the, this thing called the miracle rather than I mean, there are plenty of times in the book I went back and checked. There are plenty of times where I say enlightenment-based democracies, because it's a shorthand for the good stuff that comes from the Enlightenment. Right. But the reason why I, I call it the miracle is precisely for this reason. I've become if I you know one of the things I still stand by what I wrote in Liberal Fascism, but one of the things I've really, I've had a real um, change of heart about how I view intellectual history. That's very much like what you're talking about. You know, there's this tendency, and I write about this in the next issue of National Review. I have a big piece on the movie They Live, where I get into oh. deep into the weeds on this. Yes. And um, and <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm not kidding. <laughs> and um, uh, you know, there's that famous line from John Maynard Keynes where he says, you know. I'm gonna completely butcher it, but it's you know um, virtually everything a leader or a madman in a throne does can be traced back to the scribblings of some right, intellectual some, some obscure right right and um and I love I mean I come to the, the 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 eddies that brought me to conservatism are very much of that kind of stuff I like origin stories right and so I when I was younger, and I was doing the deep dives and reading Weaver and Vagelan and all that kind of stuff, I loved this connect the dots game, right? right? Where and it
1: all goes back to William of Ockham,
0: Joachim of Fiore. Well, right, well, <laughs>
1: well he's, you can't even mention his name. He's 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 the Voldemort
0: of, <laughs> exactly. of Western history, and um and I love that stuff, yep. but it's wrong, right? I mean, it's that's not completely wrong, It's not wrong, all wrong, right? But there's a there's a point to it, but it's overdone, right? I mean, and I talked about this on a episode of the podcast not long ago about you know, why Whitaker Chambers refused to call himself a conservative. He called himself a man of the right because of what he called the Beaconsfield position, which held that you know you have to take – it. He, he couldn't let go of his Marxist categories and he thought the means of production, broadly speaking, technology were the things that drove culture as much as anything else. And A lot of conservatives, they just want to have arguments with those ideas yep. without dealing with the things that are changing the way we live, right? So the idea that Sexual promiscuity all comes from some you know some bad ideas that escaped some German lab is nuts or is. From Kinsey, right right that, right, right.
1: right. right. Um, or it, Hugh Hefner to pick something where I'm you know I like the idea of like I, I think it's useful to talk about hefnerism right yeah and he, he made things work and he made things happen yeah. but something like that was going to happen
0: right and you know the if you my old boss Ben wattenberg used to talk about how if you looked at the census data like once you hit a tipping point about the, the mass production of – or mass ownership of automobiles, the number of um, shotgun weddings skyrocketed in this country because teenagers were off having sex in the back of cars, right? And Very uncomfortably. Well, <laughs> They were, were old cars. They were roomier. And,
1: um, well, I guess after the Model – T. I mean the Model T wasn't that roomy. I guess not. Um, but Have you ever made love in the back of a Model T?
0: I refuse to answer. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's, that's what I hoped you'd say. Um, and um, uh, and so you know, in liberal fascism, I do all this connect the dots stuff back to you know Rousseau, and you know I've actually grown to have grudging admiration for a lot of Rousseau's writing. It was actually some some of that stuff was just truly brilliant. Horrible person, but some really brilliant observations. And I think he was right about a bunch of things, um, and he was also profoundly evilly wrong about a bunch of things, but. I more and more come to the view that people use ideas as rationalizations for positions they're already heading towards. You know, it's a, there's a motivated reasoning in a lot of it and um, there's a reason why the Jacobins revived Rousseau is because his ideas gave them a prop to hold up and say, see, this Bible tells us – it's OK for us to round people up and right. murder them, Right. Um, I have this theory about bad books, or really influential bad books, right? Uh, the Greening of America. Have you ever read The Greening of America?
1: No, but I've read the Wikipedia page. Yeah, that's so all I you need. A hey, <laughs> terrible
0: book, right? Or Edward Bellamy's Looking Backward, or uh, you can go—I
1: I have actually read parts of that. Yeah, and, and yes,
0: and they're bad books, but they—they they, they, for people they're totems. There's like, aha, I, here's my, Thurman Arnold provided this rationale for the New Deal that gave you know. New Deal intellectuals free reign to do whatever the hell they wanted. You know? And I think that there's a lot more of that to intellectual history than people realize is that these books are produced because of attitudes that already exist. They don't create the attitudes. They may harden them and they may streamline them. I mean it's sort of like all the things that Trump is doing were well, in the water. Make
1: them, they make them cohere. Right.
0: right? At least it's in like, people's minds.
1: People, people are like, OK, that's that – now I understand the things I was starting to think already right. in, so in a
0: new way. That's why – one of the, that's one of the reasons why I use this term, the miracle, is that it's inexplicable why we made this unbelievable cognitive leap out of the steady state of humanity for 250,000 years, um, at least in economic terms and all of these kinds of things. And there's it's not a coincidence that it happened in basically one place in England. There's an argument about Holland. We can talk about that. But now that I found out you're not a Dutch, you're not going to be – I
1: won't be defensive um, about that part. I'll defend the the Catholics.
0: And so there are – very Hayekian, Burkean reasons for why this thing happened, right? That are just sort of embedded knowledge, trial and error, things that were built up in institutions that people don't even know why they did them this way. I mean a guy I was talking to, I wish I had this in time for the book, there's this guy Joe Heinrichs, Joseph Heinrich, I can't remember his name, who argued that uh, liberal democracy was born in 6th century England because the missionaries who came there – enforced Pope Gregory's prohibition on cousin marriage, yep. therefore creating the nuclear family, yes. right?
1: I've I've heard versions of that yes. argument.
0: No one planned it that way, right? right. When say the Protestant work ethic, no one planned that as a get-rich scheme, scheme. And so my point is, is that if we don't know exactly how we did this, we should have a certain amount of reverence and gratitude for it without questioning why this golden goose is doing this for us. And I do – and that's one of the things as a conservative, I think the role of organized religion – the role of civil society. These things have Im- immense amounts of Im- embedded knowledge in them that we may not know the roots of and so long as they're working, maybe we shouldn't try to treat everything like it's Chesterton's fence. And I've been a little surprised by – and I, I think I deserve a chunk of the blame for how many Christian conservatives um, really fault that argument. Um, and. And also don't – are kind of triggered by the fact that I say there's no God in the book even though he sneaks back in at the end. Because the reason I say there's no God in the book, I'm trying to persuade people of the left or the moderate middle or secular world that almost all the things they care about have been made better by this thing too. And so they should have some gratitude and reverence for it as well. Um, And I don't make this sort of hard enlightenment case. But I'm I'm rambling on. Um,
1: Well, it's a challenging moment for that stuff, right? Because I think, you know, we're living in a moment where I think people are there's sort of a general unhappiness with the state of affairs. And there are people like Steven Pinker, right, who come along and right. say, basically this unhappiness is bullshit. Right. Things are great. They're better than they've ever been, and some people are losing out and they're angry about it. But they're a mix of reactionary elements and, you know, Stupid left-wing intellectuals who always think things are bad, right. and you know, really things are getting better and better. Um, and then there's sort of a more Daninian argument that basically says, no, you, you know, you're right to think things are bad, and this has been it, they've been bad and getting worse ever in certain ways. That that sort of this is you know it's. And uh, would say, you know, this is to the extent that the miracle that you describe is sort of coterminous with liberalism. This is sort of the, you know, the dark fruit mm-hmm. of what had seemed to be a good tree for a very long time. And you're, you know, you're somewhere in, in, in the, the middle, middle. right? Yeah. Um, but I think your admission of uncertainty makes, you know, I, I think reading, reading the book, but also reading some of the reviews of the book, I think it people could sort of Latch on to to your argument and sort of read you as yeah I think yeah. a lot of my fellow reactionaries read you as a Pinkarian right which was not not your intention no um, but it's just a weird yeah it's it's a weird it's a weird moment and I I mean I I don't know you know I I have a lot of sympathy for sort of I think people especially younger than myself who are religious conservatives of one kind or another who look at the landscape. Of the Western world, look at the state of their own religion. You know, which right now is both Catholic and Protestant is sort of convulsed by ongoing sexual scandals. Yeah. Um, but meanwhile, more generally, has lost all this cultural ground. And you know, if you're anti-Trump, it looks like your some of your leaders have sold out to Trump. And you know, if you're if you're a critic of Pope Francis, as you know, I I have tended to be in my own book. It looks like some of your leaders are selling out to liberalism or secularism, and you know th- there's there's a lot of appetite I think among that kind of younger conservative for a version of you know the Anton Sugar line in No Country for Old Men, right? Mm-hmm. If the rule that led you to this point, I'm misquoting slightly. Mm-hmm. If the if the if the rule of your life led you to this point, of what use was the rule, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. If you know, and so they would say to your language, if the miracle got us to the point where our religion has you know lost western culture almost entirely and been you know corrupted and so on and all these various things should we really be sort of leaning into the defense of the miracle isn't at precisely that moment and i don't go that far because i you know i mean the, the there's a version of the Pinkarian argument that and of the goldbergite argument that's, that's not sort of the kind of extreme cheerleading that just seems right. Like there's a, right. there is a certain naivete in the conservatives Life and reactionaries. almost tripling is right. a good it's, thing. It's, it's, it is a good thing that, you know, children survive infancy. It is, you know, all, there are all kinds of problems with technology. But I've been reading for another book that I'm supposed to be writing, Robert Gordon's um, Economic History of the U.S., basically mm-hmm. the rise and fall of American growth. Um, And one of the points he makes that's sort of obvious but but worth emphasizing is, you know, we think of ourselves as living in this accelerating technological age and so on. But, you know, if you asked people, you know, would you rather live without every internet invention of the last 15 years or just one of the big inventions of like pick a period, 1870 to 1885 or something, which would mean like the electric light bulb or indoor plumbing or something like – the the inventions that came in yeah. between 1780 and 1960, there's no reactionary case again. Like you, you know, you, you would penicillin, right? Like yeah. air conditioning, air conditioning, and and it partially explains our present anxieties. I think that in fact the inventions of the last forty years, while they're fascinating in their way, have not been like that. Right. And they then and that then lets people. I mean, I think it makes people reasonably skeptical of the Steven Pinker "everything's going to get better forever" yeah, argument because yeah. things have been more stagnant. But you can't. I can't go all the way to, you know, well, if we just, if you know, if we'd, if if we had, if we had resisted enlightenment thinking in total, the, the side of the enlightenment that basically says we need to understand things in a rational and experimental way without as many strictures as. Institutions, including my own church, put put on people. You know that side of the Enlightenment has given us too many gifts to be simply rejected.
0: Yeah, and at the same time, because I look, I I've, I like I said, I listened, I read big chunks of Denine's book, and I listened to his Econ Talk podcast, and I'd like to have him on the show at some point. And everyone kept telling keep telling me, "Oh, we're going to have this big fight." You know, we, we you guys are opposite ends, and almost literally everything he said. Uh, not everything but big chunks of it I either agreed with wholly or in part. You know, I mean, um, I'm a big believer that we don't live in virtual communities. I'm a big believer that we don't live in a national community. I'm a big believer that we can only know and love a certain number of people and that the important things in life are about feeling needed and wanted and all of these kinds of things and the real place, the real sources of meaning in life can't come from government. They have to come from faith, friends, family, community and all of these kinds of things. Um, and I, So I'm, I'm with them on all that. Part of my argument though – or part of my response to the way you put it would be, and part of the villain in my book is the is the is this sort of romantic approach to the Enlightenment, right? I mean, the, the romanticism is born as a response to the Enlightenment. It's the, it's the raging against the gilded cage. It's man is born free and everywhere is in chains. It's all of that stuff. And it is fundamentally this idea that there should be no external constraints upon my own self-fulfillment, right? I think that is a deeply pernicious thing. I don't think the Enlightenment brought us here, brought us that. I think the response to the Enlightenment brought us that. And if you look – you know, I make this point all the time. If you look at the original story of The Goose That Lays the Golden Egg, not the one from Aesop but the one that comes into Western Europe, in the British and French versions, there goes two ways. In one case, the golden egg comes in and says – it just starts producing this miraculous golden egg once a day, and the guy says, um, "You need to give me two. And the goose, very politely, says, "I can't do that." And so the guy kills it in a rage. Right? To me, that's populism. That is this idea that the market isn't giving me everything I want on my terms fast enough, and or the Enlightenment or the Scientific Revolution, whatever it is, and therefore, in my rage and in my ingratitude, I kill it. Right? And then the other version of it is this couple. They get a goose lays a golden egg. And they use their reason to conclude that they say, ah, well, if it's giving me one golden egg a day, it must have a giant lump of gold inside of it. Let's right. cut it open, right? right? And there's no gold in there and now the goose is dead, right? And so the, the story for me, the moral of both those stories really isn't greed. It's ingratitude. It's not accepting what we've got is pretty damn good. And instead um, – and so the, 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 the right of reason is sort of the technocratic Paul Krugman, not to indict one of your colleagues, approach to the market that, that – a handful of really smart technocrats are smarter than the market, and that we can plan our way out of to something better. And the 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 strangle it one is sort of the Bernie Sanders, Donald Trump, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez um, approach that just simply says, "I feel like it could be better," and when you don't want to give it to me it's because you're choosing not to give it to me so i'm going to strangle what you the golden goose because i know that what comes after it is better and the the sweet spot is to say this sort of the tory burkean thing that say yeah there's room for improvement but these these chestertonian fences all around us we don't really understand why a lot of them were built and we if we're going to replace them we should look at them really closely and maybe we should you know assume that the reason they're there was that They were put there for a good reason. So maybe we should – if we need to fix them, we should fix them in in the place where they are. And instead, we've had this – I think what has killed so much of organized religion in our culture isn't the enlightenment. It isn't the scientific revolution. It's this romantic idea that you're not the boss of me, right? It is this opposition of authority, which obviously there are elements of that in the enlightenment. But the real part of it, the passion comes from the romantic side. It's an anti-enlightenment point of
1: view. Or it's an a – Dialectic of enlightenment. Sure, so fair enough. This, yes. You know this title from a famous book that I I'll pretend to have read that that says that those. But, but but no. But but more seriously, there is some kind of dialectic where modern American culture manages to be both sort of, you know, hyper technologically focused and technocratic, right. and that that seems to coexist effectively with. That kind of you know Sheilaism, the sort of cult of the self that uh, people started writing about in the sixties and seventies when it sort of came came into full flower. And this is a it's a variation on Deneen's argument. But I think if he were here, he might say to you, "Well, yes, there is there is that sort of dialectic. But the nature what he's describing as liberalism might be the sort of the combination of both of the Enlightenment, right, the Enlightenment yeah, and the individualism of Romanticism, and that they're you know they can war with each other in certain in certain ways and the romantic streak can sort of be absorbed into totalitarian alternatives
0: well that's um, where nationalism comes from right this right. romantic nationalism was a rebellion essentially among Germans against against French, French right. yes. imposition of enlightenment values
1: yes yes so Intellectual history is very complicated.
0: It is very very. Complicated.
1: I am I am supposed to be co-teaching a class on conservatism at Yale Law School, um, and we've been trying to work out a syllabus. And the process of working out that syllabus has mostly left me with that conclusion. Yeah. That that and and it dovetails, I think, with with the view that that. Um, that you are expressing in sort of a version of it that you know history intellectual history provides the raw materials to tell a lot of different stories about what conservatism is what liberalism is right. what capitalism is and many of them contain part of whatever the tr- the truth is and you're always going to be sort of asymptotic um, to that
0: truth. Right, so I want to ask you to change gears slightly. Um, I uh and I, I would love to hear. Have you, you haven't figured out the, uh, the the syllabus yet, right? Or the
1: we're the, almost there, but yeah, we're we're, we're working.
0: Because <laughs> um, I'd like to ask, I'd like to hear about that. But um, and who are you co-teaching it with?
1: Um, Sam Moyne who's a um, sort of young political theorist, um, a sort of neoliberal turned left winger, basically in the parlance of the time, who also writes. Occasionally for conservative publications, um, and Scott Shapiro, who's you know they're they're both liberals. So uh-huh. I'm there to be the yeah. you know real conservative captured in the wild kind of
0: kind of thing. Two to one is a great ratio for that's, a conservative. That's right. <laughs> um, so uh, a couple weeks ago, and I've been meaning to talk to Ramesh more about this, but a couple weeks ago, uh, um, I tweeted in response to something really dumb, which I, I know I have to be more specific that Tommy Lauren said on Twitter where she was defending Roe v. Wade right. and she's talking about how it's judicial uh, theocracy, religious extremism to rule against you know, Roe v. Wade. And, and I tweeted something along the lines of, um, look, I think you can be a conservative and be pro-choice, but I would rather if you didn't have such incredibly dumb arguments or something like that. And a pro-life website – went hammer and tongs yep. after me.
1: I, I, I saw that, yes.
0: And um, it started this debate and then I followed up by saying, look, I'm essentially pro-life and the people – and so then people like you know, Ben Dominic and others, well, what do you mean by essentially pro-life? And lots of asinine subtweets from um, Sean Davis about, you know, <laughs> trying to read me out of something or other. And so – The
1: church of Sean Davis. Yeah.
0: Yes. Um, uh, the pews are few but they're loud. Um <laughs> Uh, so, the first war, of all, the war of blue check marks against you, blue check marks. Do you think, do you think you can be a conservative and be um, and not be one hundred percent pro life? Um,
1: I'm yeah, not saying you can't be yeah, wrong, yes, right? Yes, yes. But that's, I mean, that doesn't that doesn't necessarily speak well of conservatives. So, I guess that's from fair. A, from a pro life perspective. I mean, I, I, I would, you know, the the way I think about it, sort of in historical terms for myself, right? Is that I'm a Christian and a Catholic first, and I'm a conservative for more contingent reasons. Sure. Because we have a civilization that was built by, you know, to a large extent my co-religionists that embodies, uh, you know, at its best religious values that I believe to be true. And, you know, obviously things have changed a lot right. <laughs> and and maybe, you know, in Patrick Deninian terms, maybe that's no longer true, but you know, to be to be a Christian means being conservative to some extent about that. That's one way of thinking about conservatism. Another way of thinking about conservatism is in sort of strictly temperamental Oakeshottian terms of you know, well, you cha- you know, you 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 fee- you know, you worry about what change brings in more than you worry about staying the same. I'm mean, you know, I'm sure, sure, sure. really really crudely reductive and so on. But but I mean, to me, conservatism generally is a contingent thing. Even, no matter how no matter how you define it a conservative in 17th century china is going to be something different from a conservative in 20th century america i agree tara and and in that sense it doesn't really make sense to me to sort of you know absolutize a set of moral values as definitively conservative which means that sometimes to sort of circle back to where I began, sometimes one can be conservative and wrong, and so much sure. the worse, so much the worse for conservatism. Right. Right. Um, but I think you said something in response to this, maybe it wasn't you, but I think it was, that I that I agreed with, which was that the pro-life movement should not see itself as a conservative movement. Right. 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 Pro, I mean, the pro-life movement is fundamentally a I mean to get back to my Tory and radicalism thing earlier, it's a radical movement for social reform sure. that happens to be allied with American conservatism because it's a principally Christian form of radicalism and American conservatism stands in sort of a strong relationship to, you know, respect for religion generally and Christianity in particular and that alliance works and has worked and and makes sense. But ultimately, for the pro-life side to win, you need people who consider themselves liberals and, and even or especially people on the left to become pro-life and to accept that it's a sort of moral issue that's beyond isms and ideologies in various ways. And so, you know, I think you could argue this lots of different ways. I'm not wedded to this position. Um, But I'm a little skeptical, you know, of of sort of, yeah, the kind of the rhetoric used against you that sort of yoked the two together, not because I think, you know, the limits on your pro-life sentiment are right, or, sure, or sure. good, yeah. um, but because I think, you know, the pro-life movement should be willing to say sometimes, well, maybe being pro-life isn't the conservative position at this particular time and place, but that doesn't matter. It's correct. Like, you know, it, it, to, to expand, the South, right? The South in America was conservative. Right. Like, and this is, you know, not to Dinesh dsouza fire our discussion too much, but Let's like, try not to do the, that. But the, the whole sort of Dinesh D'Souza thing about, you know, the, the South- is run by the Democratic Party and the Democrats were racists and, they, and, you know, they're the real racist today and they're the real heirs of the segregationists and so on. There's, you know, a piece of reasonable intellectual history there mm-hmm. that is, you don't have to comment on this, but it's basically just ripped off from you yeah, in yeah, liberal yeah. fascism. Yeah. But then there's a larger bunch of total bunkum.
0: Believe it, I, I, I have a long list of grievances right. about a lot of this. Which,
1: which is, which basically ignores the fact that, you know, there is, there is, the defense of slavery in the South, while it had some sort of modernist, eugenic, you know, scientific racist components, was ultimately deeply connected to a traditionalism that defended this this thing in terms of chivalry and order and hierarchy and a particular vision of Christianity that I think was wrong, but was sure. in fact like I don't the slaveholders were Christians. Like you right. can't you can't dispute that the slaves would not have become Christians themselves right. if they weren't and what all that means is that. You know, as a conservative today, if you said to me, "Does being conservative mean that you're against racism?" Right? Like, I would say, "Well, ideally, right. Yes. Right. But there, but there was clearly a version of conservatism that you know defended white supremacy, and and that was still conservative. And in the same That's way, right. I wouldn't. You know, I think Tommy Lahren is um, <clears throat> not the most intellectually rigorous thinker of our time.
0: Record scratch.
1: But when she, but when, but but when she claims to be a pro-choice conservative, yeah, I, I, I guess this is a very long-winded way of saying I agree with you that it is possible to be pro-choice and a conservative, and the pro-life view should be, you know, so much the worse for that particular conservative.
0: Yeah, I mean, a, a couple of things, just very quickly. Um, and I'm perfectly happy to explain what I mean by essentially pro-life, but uh, I think it's more important for this conversation to explain what I mean by a conservative. There are so many different kinds of conservatism, many of which I despise, right? Right. I mean, uh, you know, uh, read Friedrich Hayek's Why I'm Not a Conservative, something the libertarians love to quote the title of but never quote the essay. He is just going hammer and tongs against the blood and soil conservatism, some of which you might be sympathetic to, of uh, uh, Enlightenment era and earlier of France and continental Europe, right? He's going after de Meist and all those guys. And he says that... America is the one place in the world where you can call yourself a conservative and still be on the side of liberty because we're trying to conserve a fundamentally liberal institution, which is the American founding, right? And if if I can make one recommendation for your course, Samuel, Huntington, Samuel Huntington's Conservatism as an Ideology is a fantastic essay w- in which he makes this contingent point that a conservative in, in America means something profoundly different than a conservative in Portugal. You know, A conservative in Portugal might want, want to restore the throne. A conservative in America – wants to uphold the principles that overthrew the crown. Very different things. Radicalism and conservatism are the two most contingent ideologies. They depend entirely upon where you're, where, and when you're talking about. My problem with the the conservatism and pro-life thing is that, first of all, I think the Republican Party should be a pro-life party, right? I think Roe v. Wade should be overruled. I think you can be pro-choice and still think Roe v. Wade can be overruled. Where I say I'm essentially pro-life is that in the, at the at, – I think, let me let me put it this way. The reason why abortion makes me uncomfortable at the end, at the second and third trimester, is because I think it's a moral horror, right? The reason why abortion makes me uncomfortable um, in the first two weeks, right, of pregnant of of of, of inception or, uh, conception or yeah. conception, yeah, conception, is I don't like the state being involved in the process of deciding who is and who is not a human being, and um, so it's a very libertarian point on, on – at the, the beginning of life. I cannot muster anything like the moral horror I have for things like partial birth abortion for the aborting of blastocysts. But that doesn't mean um, – and so like the morning after pill, it doesn't shake me to my core and fill me with a sort of morally generated disgust the way essentially infanticide does in this eighth you know or ninth month. And so I'm just willing to admit my – my intellectual uh, weakness about the beginning of the argument. But as a way to organize society, as a way to sort of formulate dogma, all these kinds of things, I am a fellow traveler with pro-lifers. Um, my problem really was, was – first of all, as, a, as you sort of keyed off of, as a matter of political strategy, it is insane to me for pro-lifers to say you have to be a conservative to be a pro-lifer. Because that way you're basically telling every socialist, every good Catholic, you know, social – every Nat Hentoff type, um, uh, everyone who wants single-payer healthcare that they also have to be um, uh, pro-choice, right? You want to make it a, a separate track. But the other problem is, is that the, there were lots of people who came after me including people you know I'm friends with who see conservatism as a – sort of industrial analog to the Republican Party, that it's a movement, it's a network of institutions. And so to me, what they were doing is they were replacing an cons- a, a intellectual, philosophical conception with um, the Young America's Foundation and the NRA and, you know, these network of institutions, right? right? And those are just different things to me. Um, and so
1: – I mean I think there's a distinction here between strategy and language right like yeah, that's another there's, there's there's an argument and i think it's a reasonable one that would say look you know we want liberals to become pro life but you know we right now we are fighting a battle you know to sort of consolidate a pro life settlement within the republican party and so we want there to be some kind of litmus test in the same way that you know in the same sex marriage debate right there was a period where you know, there was a strategic case for liberals to say, "To be a good liberal, you have to be for same-sex marriage," right. and then we'll convince the conservatives later in, in the next in the next iteration. And that on that strategic level, and I think people read everything through the lens of political <laughs> strategy these days. It's yeah. one of the weird things, you know, about our era that everyone is sort of constantly in sort of pundit analyst mode. Um, so but but in that sense I think that's the defense uh, the strong defense of the critique of you that says look this is a strategic question and we're trying to set a strate- you know we're trying to set we're trying to set up a strategic litmus test to sort of solidify pro life control over either the Republican party or the institutions of conservatism I think at the level of sort of linguistics and philosophy saying you can't be conservative and pro choice is is you know, absurd. Right. Basically. Okay, and I and, agree and with. So, so, so those. I yeah, think that I is think enti- you can make that distinction. I think that is
0: entirely fair and legitimate. I think what was really interesting about the moment had more to do with the fact that a lot of these outlets and and individuals thought that I was the better target of their ire than Tommy Lauren, because there is this unbelievable deference to. Um,
1: Well, that's a step – yeah. that's Clickbait
0: warlords out there, right? And um, so I'm throwing her under the bus bus for saying something stupid that is contrary to the strategic argument, that is contrary to the moral argument and instead because I made some rhetorical concession to a thing that they didn't like and because I'm in this anti-Trump box for a lot of these people, uh, they'd rather attack me than attack her even though they didn't realize that I was actually carrying water for them. Um, and that's part of the weird moment that we're in, um, which moves me. In the end, I mean, I know we're going long. Do you have do you have a hard out?
1: Um, why don't we go five more minutes? Okay, and then I'll race to a train.
0: Okay, so uh, um, dealer's choice. Yes. Uh, what do you if you could wave your hand tomorrow and come up with a solution for a the Catholic Church, <laughs> <laughs> b. The Alex Jones situation or C, the final season of Game of Thrones.
1: <laughs> OK. Well, let's do those in reverse order. So the final – I think Game of Thrones, I hate to be a pessimist, um, a remnantist. It seems to me unsalvageable. Really? I, I think that the – I think the next – the second to the last season was yeah, – it had some good moments but it mm-hmm. was, it was so terrible as to make a kind of comeback. I mean, I'll still watch the show. I'll still enjoy it. But the idea that the show had sort of achieved, you know, the show's goal, it had this opportunity to achieve a sort of narrative success that the books, because they'll never be finished, are never going to achieve. And I think that's gone. It's been forfeited. So as, you know, you watch the show, I mean, I I rewatched the whole show with my (laughs) long-suffering wife before the last season. And up until that season, you know set aside my problems with the, you know, the sex position and the torture porn, narratively, as this sort of, you know, political, mythological drama, it works quite well. Mm-hmm. And in to, to stop working to have that much sort of egregious narrative absurdity in the next to last season, I, I just, you know, again, it'll be fine, but I, I don't think there's any coming back from that. And I think it shows that ultimately, the creators of the show needed Martin's, they needed Martin's scaffolding. To work with, and or, or they needed more. Like I, I assume he gave them scaffolding, but they needed more, and you know he didn't come up with it, and it's all his fault. Um, so that's one. Uh, Alex Jones, I'm totally torn on this. I I can see both arguments. You know the the argument that Jones, you know this goes to your. To some extent, to what you were saying about Tommy Laren, there is an unwillingness among a certain type of conservative to sort of fully admit the toxicity mm-hmm. of a big chunk of what, sort of, you know, what was there already, but what has sort of fastened on to Trumpism. And Jones, you know, no less than the white nationalist, is toxic. Mm-hmm. He is not just a conspiracy theorist and all the rest. He, you know, I mean, the Sandy Hook stuff and so on. I mean, he's he's a he's a vile figure um and in that sense a media environment in which he you know didn't didn't have as many platforms is a better media environment and it's potentially better for conservatives mm-hmm. as well that being said the argument that this is simply about you know private enterprises doing their thing and so on seems to me wrong mm-hmm. because it's a case of clear collusion like you know i mean to, to use a much used word mm-hmm. i mean all of these Google and YouTube and so on, or Facebook and YouTube, like, they all acted in concert right. at the same time. That Turn is, your key. That is, yeah, that is not sort of free market behavior. That is, you know, sort of cartel behavior, yeah. basically. And the justification that they used for it was not Alex Jones. You know, is is in the midst of a lawsuit over over you know, slandering people and, and defaming or whatever the details of the Sandy Hook cases are. It was a much more generic sort of hate speech kind of thing. And I think it's also reasonable for conservatives to look at sort of where the wind is blowing on some of those issues and see the specific way this was done as a a dangerous precedent. That, you you know, you really do have an internet where a few big companies have a ton of control. I think the anti-monopolist critique of parts of Silicon Valley has some real strength. And, you know, the... I, in that sense, I I both – I want a conservatism that is sort of cleansed of the Jones toxins and, you know, sort of a little censorship. And it's not censorship obviously mm-hmm. but, you know, a I little – res- that, that could be a good thing. But I can see the argument that the precedent is, you know, is going to be used against Ben Shapiro sure. or somebody like that tomorrow. And you don't want to live in a media environment where – uh, you know these these companies are working together to decide who gets who gets a platform um and who doesn't and the aftermath of Trump's election you know that there's this strong strand of sort of liberal establishment hysteria that is dedicated to the idea that you know it is it's cheating for populists to use the internet right right Right. And you saw a little of this in Ireland with the abortion referendum, where you know the big companies were like, "Oh, we're not going to accept any advertising from, you know, from outside Ireland uh, because that advertisement is disproportionately pro-life." But what that meant was that you know the the media in Ireland, which is disproportionately pro-choice, just had sort of a stranglehold right. on discourse, and you know that didn't tip that referendum. It was going that way no matter what. But it's an example of how you know the reaction to Trump's election. Can be a kind of media sense of like, well, now you know we need to sort of you know not let the populists do the things right. the Obama. The definition of did, hate, right?
0: The definition of hate speech now is speech that the left hates.
1: In yes, in some in some cases, in some situations, and that you know, I mean, these tech companies are not like they're sensitive to these things. You know, there are people on the left who complain that Zuckerberg or Jack Dorsey at Twitter are too solicitous of right wing conspiracy theorists and so on. I mean, the, the company, it's not as simple as. The companies are just locking things down for liberalism, but there is pressure on them in the, that direction, and the sort of cartel behavior is not—you know—it's not—it's not, not ideal. Um, and the Catholic Church—the uh, last time I was on, we <laughs> talked at great length yes, about my book. Um, everything I said still applies. Please buy it um, to learn, you know, and and uh, and read it and and all of that. But I. The combination of sort of renewed sexual scandal involving bishops and archbishops and cardinals, with you know the the, the continuing—I would just describe it as a kind of continuing intellectual crisis mm-hmm. in the church. With you know, the pope made this move on the death penalty that you know didn't trouble me in the way that his moves on divorce and remarriage troubled me, but I think basically contributed to a greater incoherence and an already mildly incoherent. Um, understanding of what the church taught in the past and what it teaches now. And I think that's just the general problem, that basically, you know, the church did change a lot at the Second Vatican Council. John Paul II came along and sort of offered an interpretation of that change that a lot of conservative Catholics considered definitive. And what has happened before Francis but accelerating under Francis is a combined, one, a realization that, you know, John Paul, the John Paul era was thick with clerical corruption and two, a realization that the John Paul synthesis is vulnerable in all kinds of ways, and I don't have a solution. You know, the, <laughs> solu- the solution I, I don't have the certainty of traditionalists on yeah. a lot of these fronts, and I don't. But I'm v- very skeptical of the sort of Protestantization of Catholicism that a lot of liberals, even though they don't, even though they'd say that's unfair, I think they ultimately are seeking and. You know, I mean, look. If the church, if the church is the church, it's it's going to come through this okay. And uh, um, so, my solution for it is,
0: you know, providence. <laughs> basically. <laughs> All right. Well, Ross, thank you very much. I know you want to go to train. Um, thank you for doing this. Okay, so Ross has left the building and um, I'm going to record another podcast very shortly to put in the can for when I'm on the road. I'm doing, as some of you may have heard, I'm going to be going on a family cross-country adventure by RV. Uh, I'm going to see the sights. If anybody has uh, recommendations for family fun that's dog-friendly in the uh, far west, you know, Montana, Wyoming, North Dakota, that kind of thing. Uh, shoot me an email, um, jonahnro at gmail.com. Um, thanks again to everybody for the reviews on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, this, that, and the other thing. Uh, it really does mean a lot. Um, uh, please keep the comments coming in at Jonah Remnant on Twitter. And um, I'm sorry there's no Jack Butler this week because Jack is off in Washington doing the weird, depraved, odd. Strange things that I suspect he does when I'm out of town. Um, And that's really unfortunate because Jack is a big fan of Ross's and uh, just the gods never let uh, the two of them meet in person. Um, All the various things that we mentioned on this thing will be up on the show notes. Oh, and I want to thank – I don't know if they wanted their name mentioned on air, but I got uh, just an amazing gift uh, from a listener – who I think is concerned about my eternal soul, which we can all agree is a reasonable thing for some people to worry about. Um, I got this amazing leather-bound, embossed Bible, with instead of my name on the cover, it says slash dingo, which uh, I, I, I trust me from the letter, it was not meant irreverently whatsoever. Uh, but I just thought it was kind of awesome, and I have it on my desk at the office. Um, I'm not going to say I'd rather a bottle of you know 12 or 18 year old Scotch, uh, but because um, I think that would be that would be irreverent. But it was really great to th- great to get, and um, it was very kind of the person who sent it to us. So anyway, thanks again to everybody. Um, I'm gonna there's definitely going to be a broadcast next week. I don't know about the week after. We may try to do one from the road where I'll just sort of give tales from the road. Um, but thanks again for the support from everybody. Thanks to Ross for coming in here on an absolutely horrible uh, day in New York City, um, which is basically every day in the summer. And I'll see you next week. and Ro- and, and Jack's not here to say, no, you won't. This is a podcast. Bye. Of metal and wheels. He no longer cares for growth.